0: Amen, amen. You may be seated this morning. Middle schoolers, you are dismissed as they're going to be up in the youth room, parents having their lesson. The rest of us, we're going to continue in our verse-by-verse study in the book of Ephesians. So if you'll turn to Ephesians chapter 4, we'll begin reading that verse 1. If you're new to Calvary Chapel or visiting with us, we go through the scriptures chapter by chapter and verse by verse. So we've covered the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, and now we'll be moving into chapter 4. I did have originally had the thought of we're going to get through verse 16. We will not make it through verse 16 today, but we'll see how far the Lord gets us. You guys are at 11 o'clock service, so I can, I can teach till, what, 2, 3 o'clock if I wanted to, which I won't do, all right? But Ephesians chapter 4, we'll begin at verse 1 of the book of Ephesians. Now in the first three chapters of Ephesians, if you've been with us on Sunday morning, I think are some of the richest portions of scripture in all of the New Testament. And flowing from Paul the Apostle, from his pen, as he's inspired by the Spirit of God, remember that he is in prison in Rome under house arrest. And comes all these wonderful truths that has been declared to us, the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ, the wonderful work of God's grace as believers. We now understand our position in Christ, don't we? We've seen the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. The the privileged statuses we have as believers as we have carefully looked at these truths declared to us in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And you see, here's what's important. Once we understand that, uh, that we are ones that we belong to Him and the spiritual blessings are ours, Now we're going to see that Paul changes gears, if you would. He he changes subjects and he begins to talk about this is how you live for Christ. So Paul gets us seated in the heavenlies with Christ first, telling us that you've been chosen, you've been redeemed, you've been adopted, you've been forgiven, you have an eternal inheritance in Christ. And you recall as we moved into chapter 2, our spiritual condition before we came to faith in Jesus Christ is that you are spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins, very much alive physically, but you've walked after, you know, the lust of the world and after the prince of the power of the air. But now that God has rescued us through Jesus Christ as Jesus went to the cross at Calvary, We know that he died for our sins, he rose again, and now we have forgiveness of sin. We have the hope of heaven that is promised to us in right relationship with the Father. We are all saved by grace, we are trophies of his grace. We are seated in the heavenlies in Christ. And then also, Paul, after he tells us that we are his workmanship, that is, we are his masterpiece, his poem, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we come together as Christians in this single entity that is called the church. Um, We are all of the household of God. And he, in chapter 2, at the latter part, and then going into chapter 3, he wants the Gentile believers, particularly as he's writing to the Ephesian believers, most of them are Gentile believers, non-Jews, that, listen, you guys are part of the household of God. You who are considered at one time afar off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ, and you are now ones that that you're no longer strangers or foreigners to the household of God, that you're ones that are partakers of his promises, because they needed to understand that. And the Jews, uh, they needed to understand that they were saved by grace alone. They were saved by faith in Jesus Christ, not by the law, in other words. Because the law only condemns you, only shows that you're guilty in need of the Savior Jesus Christ. And so now there's neither Jew nor Gentile, there's neither male or female, there's neither free or slave, but we're all one in Christ, as Paul would write to them of the mystery of Christ being brought together, that we are a holy habitation unto the Lord called the church. And then at the end of chapter 3, of course, the apostle just breaks out and prays, and as he says, that... I pray that you would know the depth of his love for you. So after we are established in those wonderful truths, knowing our privileged blessings and the spiritual blessings that are ours and and the privileged status that we have in Christ, then chapter 4, verse 1, that we read that the apostle writes, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. So Father, we do ask that this morning... Yet as we now come to you and read your word, that Lord, that we would just continue to marvel at the incredible riches that are ours in Christ. The spiritual blessings as we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And Lord, my prayer is that right now we, that we would have arts, hearts that are open to you and teachable, that we be settled in our seats, that we re- remember that our cell phones need to be turned off or silenced. And Lord, that we would be attentive to the things that you want to show us and teach us through your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. So once you understand the riches and the wealth that, ours, uh, that are ours in Christ, all those things that, again, that we carefully looked at over the last several weeks, the apostle then says, walk worthy, not so that God will love us, but we walk worthy because he loves us already. I understand what God has done for me. He's rescued me. He has saved me. And now I want to walk worthy of the calling in which we were called. I'm rooted and grounded in his love. I don't doubt that God loves me. I don't doubt what he has done for me. The grace that's been lavished and given to me. And what that does is it stirs my heart, and I can't help but respond out of love for him and cause me to desire to walk with him and live for him. And that is such a key, listen, to Christian living. You see, oftentimes what can happen is the Christian can struggle with walking with, with the Lord because they've never really sat with the Lord. You see, you have to sit first before you walk. And as you are seated in the heavenlies, as you just understand more fully the spiritual blessings that are yours in Christ and how He saved you and rescued you, and how He desires to use you in a wonderful way and being His workmanship, how you've been brought together in. in near to the Lord, in this wonderful thing called the church, once you just ponder God's wonderful grace and goodness, and you are understanding his love and promises, how rich you truly are in Christ, having an understanding of, of the height and the width and the depth and the length of God's love for you, which we can never fully understand. Why? Because God's love is uh, unmeasurable, it's indescribable, it's unsearchable. His love is so great for us. But once you begin to understand his love for you, you can't help but be rooted in his love and grounded in his love. And then the response is, I just have a heart to want to walk with you, Lord. So the next three chapters here, this epistle, we're going to be told how it is that we get to live for Christ because of our love for Christ, how it is that we are to walk worthy. In the first 16 verses, he's going to talk about walking in unity. And then as we continue on through these chapters, uh, actually chapter 4 is going to finish. The second part is chapter 4, in walking in purity. Because you see, living in God's grace doesn't mean that I just get to do whatever it is that I want to do. See, Paul wrote about that in Romans chapter 6. Should I continue in sin that grace abound? He said, certainly not. You're dead to sin. You live in a newness of life. And and that's what we need to reckon. We need to know it to be true. And so living in grace means I get to live for him. I'm free to live for him. Not free to live as I want. Not free to live after the world. Because you see, the world will just only bring you into bondage. And into despair and hopelessness. But living for Christ is where we truly are free. So purity is a part of that. And then as we continue in chapter 5, how we walk in light and how we walk in wisdom and how we live in harmony with one another, husbands to wives and wives to husbands and and parents to children and children to parents and employers to employees. We'll see that. And then as we end the book, we're going to see that we walk in victory because the enemy comes against us. Now, notice as we begin this section that Paul once again writes, as we read in verse 1, I am a prisoner of the Lord. I'm not a prisoner of circumstances. I'm not a prisoner of Rome or of Caesar Nero. But I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And his path of obedience to the call of God in his life would lead him to be in prison here at this time under house arrest. And that reminds us that the Christian walk can be costly. It can be difficult. And the reason is, is because the world will come against us. Matter of fact, Jesus said that the world's going to hate you because it first hated me. And understand that as you're one that's desiring to walk worthy of the calling in which you were called, you make a stand for Jesus, you believe in him, as you're a light in this dark world, the world's going to come against you and I. And I think that the world is going to be more hostile towards us as the world is getting further and further away from our Lord. There's so much darkness, and the days are getting darker. So we know that it can be difficult, the world coming against us, but also Satan fights against us. And that's why we see that the apostle at the end of this epistle is going to talk to you and to me, telling us and, and informing us and instructing us to put on the whole armor of God because we wrestle against principalities and powers. The enemy that likes to throw the fiery darts at us and come in against us. So he begins this second section of the book of Ephesians by telling us, walk worthy of the calling in which you are called. And Paul now begins to tell us the character of a worthy walk, verse 2, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we're to walk with all lowliness and gentleness, Now, as I read that, and as you read that, that might remind you of something, kind of trigger a thought in your mind, you who are students of the scripture, and that is, of course, in Matthew chapter 11. And in that chapter, Jesus, in the Galilee region, he's preaching to the multitudes. And on that hillside in Galilee, he would cry out to the crowds, "'Come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest.'" And take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek, or that is gentle, and lowly in heart. So how is it that you and I are to live? What's the characteristics that we are to have? Well, we're to live as Jesus lived. We're to have the characteristics that Jesus had. As we are told that we are to walk in all loneliness, which speaks of humility, doesn't it? I'm to walk in humility. I'm to walk with all gentleness or meekness. Now remember that as we are to be meek, blessed are the meek, is what Jesus would say. Walking in meekness does not mean that you are walking in weakness, all right? Sometimes we hear that word, meekness, and I'm supposed to be meek and, you know, kind of like, you know, just, you know, weak and all of this. It doesn't mean that. You and I are told to be strong and good courage. But what that word meekness means is that as you are strong, you are under the control of the Holy Spirit. It is self-control. It is strength under control. And that's what it means. So as we are walking with Christ, strength under control, as we are walking in humility, then as we talked about last week, the response to understanding the grace of God is that it humbles us, doesn't it? I can't boast of myself. I don't try to elevate myself, but I'm humbled at God's wonderful grace that has been given to me. We are to walk with meekness. We are to walk in humility. We are to walk in that way. And then Paul continues and says, also we are to walk with all longsuffering, which speaks of patience, having temperament. In other words, that word means temperament, not easily angered or flying off the handle. Being long-suffering with people is what you and I are to be. We live in a society where we're so impatient. We are taught and we are learned and it is emphasized that you get what you want and you get it now and you get it your way. And I'm going to bowl over people and I'm going to rule over people and I'm going to, you know, come down on people if I don't get what I want in the timing that I want. Because we live in a society, and I don't need to tell you this, well, we become so self-focused and self-centered. That's what the world tells us to do. And unfortunately, that can creep into the church. And there's a lot of Christianity that is, it's all about me. And this is what I want, and this is how I want it. And church, this is what my expectations are, and my expectations for you. And if you don't meet those expectations, then forget you. And I pray that wouldn't be the case for any of us. Because we are told in the scriptures very clearly as Christians that we're to be Christ-centered, we're to be other-centered, be long-suffering, just as God declared his name as he declared it to Moses. Clear back in the book of Exodus, chapter 34, verse 6, the Lord, the Lord, God merciful and gracious and long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. God has been long-suffering with us. I know he has been with me. And I think that all of you can say he has been with you as well. Hasn't he been patient with you? He's been patient with me. And so you and I, we are to be long-suffering. We're to be patient to others as we walk with Christ. And then as we move on, verse 2 also says, bearing with one another in love. And that, of course, speaking of agape love, God's love for one another. It's the great command of Jesus that you love one another just as I have loved you. So having humility, having gentleness, having patience and love that are a part of our lives being worked out in our lives, what it does is it fosters unity among Christians as we read again in verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit the bond of peace. So Paul wrote about how we as Christians are brought together, you remember, in this holy habitation, a holy temple to God, Jesus being the chief cornerstone, chapter 2, no longer are you aliens and foreigners and you're brought into, you know, the household of God. We are all one, whether Jew or Gentile. And Paul needed to press that point in the early church. He needed to get that truth across, particularly to the Gentiles who thought that they were strangers or foreigners. Hey, you are ones that the mystery is that you're fellow heirs as well. You're partakers of the promise of christ and as paul's making that point he now begins to talk about this thing called the church that not that we're to make unity but there is unity and we're to keep this unity It's a work of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And so Paul begins to write about this unity that we have in the body, in the church. And this is what gives us unity, verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. The unity that Paul speaks about and that God desires is a unity of the Spirit. It's a spiritual unity. It's not a structural or denominational unity per se, but we have unity as believers because of what we share in common. Notice one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. This is what brings unity. So there is one body. But rather what happens is, is that Christians, we can be divided on issues that we shouldn't. You know, we, we divide on things that shouldn't bring division. And as Paul is emphasizing the essentials here, and there are the essentials of Christianity and who Jesus is and salvation that are important for us to be united on and agree on, there are other issues that can bring division, like perhaps worship, the style of worship. There are those who maybe that they are into, you know, the hymns, and, and then there are those who do contemporary and even though we may not go to the same place to worship, we go to that place of worship, the body of believers, where we can worship in the way that we desire to, we still have unity, don't we? There may be other issues that come along, and maybe even in the dress that people that go to church, some are a lot more formal than others are. And those issues should not divide us. So Paul is emphasizing all the things that make us one, bringing unity causing us to come together into this holy habitation. There's one body, one body of Christ. There's not several bodies. And the same Spirit that dwells in me dwells in you, and that is the Spirit of God. We have one hope, and Jesus is our hope. He is the only hope. And we, through Jesus, have salvation and the hope of heaven. There is one Lord, none other, one faith. Our faith is not in religion. Our faith is not in a church but it's in Jesus Christ. There's one baptism. Now, some will say that Paul's speaking of water baptism. Others believe that this is a reference to the baptism of the Spirit, or it simply could just be speaking of the baptism into the body of Christ, which is a work of the Spirit. And then we are united because we believe in the one God who is, as the apostle writes, the Father of all, is above all, and through all, and in you all. And so all of this common ground brings us together as one. And you are to walk in that unity, or in other words, you are to keep or you are to guard that unity. When Paul was writing to the Corinthian church, the Corinthian church had grown very quickly, and after Paul left the city of Corinth, he gets word that, hey, there's carnality. There's a lot of problems in the church of Corinth. But the first issue that Paul begins to address in that first letter of his to the Corinthian believers is their division. It very much concerned Paul. You can tell, hey, I hear that there's divisions among you. And in chapter 1, verse 12, that some of you are saying, I'm of Paul. So this group over here is saying, I'm of Paul. And this group over here is saying, well, we're of Apollos. And this group over here is saying, well, we're of Paul. And then the real spiritual ones were the ones that were saying, we're of Christ. We're the real spiritual ones. And and there was that division. And Paul, as he addressed it, he says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Is Christ divided? And as I mentioned to you today, Christians and churches can be divided over issues that really should not divide us, sometimes over a a different take on the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit, maybe on end-time prophecy, the timing of the rapture of the church, And that shouldn't bring us division. And I had a discussion with one that he had a a little bit different view and he teaches a little bit differently on the rapture of the church. And I said, if you want to be wrong, that's your business. But, um, (laughs) But no, seriously, that shouldn't bring us division in the body of Christ. You know, there's one baptism, one spirit. The things that we have in common are greater than any potential difference. And all of us, I think, that we probably... We have friends or, or family members or coworkers, or neighbors that they're Christians, but they go to a different church. They, they, you know, have a different style of ministry that they like or different worship service that they like. And, and yet we're all brothers and sisters in Christ, aren't we? And you know that there's that bond that is there, and you can meet somebody from a different part of the country or in another country completely, and instantly there's a bond because we're one in Christ. We're all part of the body of Christ. So Paul is saying, hey, you need to keep this unity. Keep the proper perspective. You need to guard this unity. Uh, And he continues writing here in verse 7, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. In verse 10, he who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. So Paul now, notice here, that he turns from all of us in verse 6 to each of us in verse 7. We're all one body, but we are each different members of that one body that are given grace according to the measure of Christ's gifts, verse 7. The Holy Spirit gives us certain gifts, spiritual gifts, so that we might function within this one body to edify and bring comfort to the body of Christ. Paul wrote very specifically about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, as a lot of you know. And in that chapter, he likens the physical body as he uses as an analogy that the physical body has all different parts, different members, fingers and and, uh, arms and legs and toes and eyes and mouth and ears. There are millions of parts to our physical body all working together so that the body can function in the way that it's supposed to. He says, likewise, in in the body of Christ, that there are different giftings, That are there a diversity of gifts and there's you know differences of ministry and we're all members of the body of christ that we have and so we are all part of one body and we come together in using the gifts that god has given to us in the callings so that the body can function in a way it's supposed to and that is bringing glory to god being a light to this dark world and edifying one another in the body of christ these gifts that we're going to be talking about are not given by the church. They're not given by Bible colleges or seminaries. They're not given by the pastor. And the spiritual gifts that are mentioned in the New Testament cannot be purchased. These gifts that Paul will talk about are not about my own abilities and talents in the flesh. And we need to understand that. It's very important. A spiritual gift, of course, is given by God to enable us to serve God in this body of believers. So that God, again, is glorified and that we believers are edified. And it is given based on, as we learn here in Ephesians chapter 4, based upon His grace. We don't deserve or earn spiritual gifts. It is by His grace, the unmerited favor of God. And 1 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us that He gives these gifts according to His will. So it's according to his will, it's according to his grace. And again, that was important for me to understand and for all of us to understand that because there is a difference, as I mentioned, between spiritual gifts and natural abilities and talents. Now, natural abilities and talents that we might have, for example, in music, or maybe a good athlete, a good singer, um, someone who's very intelligent, It's fun as a parent to watch the strengths of our kids that come out, the talents that God has given to them, the abilities, that comes from the Lord, but spiritual gifts are given by His grace with so we can function within the body of Christ given to us. And you see, once I understood that, that was a blessing to me because I remember when I first became a Christian and I wanted to serve the Lord and, oh Lord, I just have a desire. To serve you and to be, you know, used of you, and I thought that God could not use me to very much any degree because I didn't really have any talents. I thought I don't—I'm not a real gifted person in much of anything. When it comes to intellect, when it comes to, you know, speaking, uh, stutter and stammer, when it comes to um, personality, when it comes to anything, I don't have a whole lot to give to you, Lord. And as I grew in the Word and as I matured in the Word of God, I understood that He will gift us according to His will, that He will give those giftings according to His grace. He will call us in what He wants us to do, and He will enable us to do that which He has called us to do. And as we learned last week, that Paul's prayer is that may He do exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think. Isn't that wonderful? So you may be here thinking, well, I don't have a lot to give. And I think that the Lord, one of the reasons that the Lord has me up here as the pastor-teacher of this church and teaching the Word of God is to be encouragement to you. Because you might be thinking, man, if he can use Pastor Jeff, he can use me, certainly. If he can use that guy, then I can be used to the Lord, and it's true. And remember this, that God chooses the weak and foolish things of the world, doesn't he? He uses the weak things to confound the strong and the foolish things to, uh, to confound the mighty. The things that are not to bring the naught the things that are that no man can glory in his presence. We can't glory in anything that the Lord is doing in us because he's the one that gifts us. He's the one that enables us. He's the one that opens the door for us to be able to minister as we are a part of the body of Christ. So as we understand that, we can relax and just begin to say, Lord, what is it that you would have me to do? Because he desires to give each and every one of us spiritual gifts to be used in the body of Christ. And there is great joy in exercising the gift that God has given to you by his grace. Now, the question comes up, how does a person, a believer, know and discover their gifting that God has given to them? And you see, Ephesians chapter 4, when we get to verse 11, and we're not going to be able to, to really get into it today, we'll pick it up there next time in talking about these spiritual gifts, but these aren't the only gifts in the body of Christ. We have a list there, spiritual gifts given to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and also in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, as well as Ephesians four eleven, And all of these gifts are needed in the body of Christ So why? As you know, so the body of Christ can function and be a blessing to others. So these gifts are to be given, and I think that as I discover those gifts, as the Lord gives me those gifts, as those gifts can be developed, as God grows me through His grace, the one way that we can know the giftings that we have is make sure that you are a part of the fellowship of believers, you are part of the body of Christ. That's one of the reasons that I tell people make sure that you're plugged into a church. You see, first of all as we've discussed a lot, that you know, Satan would love nothing more than the believer to get out by himself or herself, to be isolated. And the reason is, it's a lot easier for him to beat you up and come against you when you're isolated and alone. And so to be a part of the body of believers there's safety and there's there's, there's that edification and comfort and strength that comes in being and belonging to a body of believers. But also, as you belong and as you are fellowshipping and as you are growing and learning, then God begins to put things on your heart and he begins to prompt you and give you opportunity. And it's just kind of a natural thing that, Lord, you know, this is what I desire to do. And you begin to discover those gifts being worked out in your life. For me, it was, Lord, I just, I'd love to teach the Word of God. And the Lord just slowly, as I began to realize that it's Him working in me, that I can teach the Word of God. And it started out with a small group. And it started out with just a few people and meeting with some guys early in the morning during the week. And the Lord has given me opportunity and the privilege be able to develop that teaching and be able to be a pastor teacher now and we're going to talk about the pastor teacher next time as we go through these gifts but for you as we look at the gifts of the spirit you know maybe you might have the gifts of help the gift of helps that just helping people out practically and that's so needed in the body of christ that gift of helps mentioned in first corinthians chapter 12 help people out and ministering to them and reaching out to them in practical ways. It might be that you have the gift of teaching. Now, here's the thing about, as I mentioned to you, Paul writes that there's you know, a diversity of gifts that are listed, and there is differences of ministry. In other words, you might have the gift of teaching, but you're not called to be a pastor teacher. You may have the gift of teaching to the children or to youth. I've listened to those who have taught the children and were amazed how they were able to teach the children at their level and the wisdom and the way that they did. I'm thinking, man, they're really gifted in that. It might be gifting, the gift of teaching being exercised again in a small group or to, you know, uh, ladies, teaching a lady study or home fellowship. It might be for you, whatever it might be. It might be that you have the gift of administration, the gift of exhortation, the gift of giving, all those spiritual gifts that the Lord desires to work through you. And you will see those things being worked out in your life as you're fellowshipping with other believers. So Paul is going to begin to mention these gifts here in Ephesians 4 as he talks about the spiritual gifts. Before he does that, he quotes in verse 8 from Psalm 68, verse 18. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And what does Paul mean? That he first descended into the lower parts of the earth before he ascended. Well, some Bible scholars and commentators say that Paul's just referring to Christ's incarnation, that he descended to earth to die and then to resurrect, ascend back to heaven. But I think that as others have suggested, what Paul's referring to is when Jesus descended into Hades, Abraham's bosom after his death. Remember that Jesus on the cross and there was that thief being crucified next to him. And the thief cried out to, to Jesus and said, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, Before the sun has set, you'll be with me in paradise. So Jesus would breathe his laugh, the, the, the thief on the cross, and they would go into paradise or Abraham's bosom. Now Jesus told of a story, not a parable, but a story in Luke chapter 16 of Lazarus and the rich man, how they both died, and it was the Lazarus, um, that went to Abraham's bosom, the rich man went to that place of torment. They went to Hades in that compartment in, in uh, the middle of the earth, you know. Uh, Jesus descended before he ascended, and it was there in that place of the unrighteous dead, that place of torment, the rich man, and he calls over to Abraham, Abraham's bosom, to Lazarus there. There was a chasm between them, and that was paradise. So Jesus would go to paradise as he escorted, if you would, the thief on the cross to Abraham's bosom as they were waiting for the fullness of when Jesus died once and for all for our sins. You see, those before the cross looked in faith to the cross, and they were in that compartment. And the animal sacrifices only covered sin, as the book of Hebrews declares to us. But Jesus came along, and he would put away sin once and for all for us. As he died, the perfect lamb of God, the animal sacrifices could not do that. It was kofar, covered, until Jesus came and died once and for all. And then he would go to the heavenly temple, tabernacle, and minister there. He presented his blood as a sacrifice. It was accepted. So Abraham's bosom, that compartment is now empty. And all of them that were there before the cross are now in heaven. And those of the unrighteous dead are still there matter of fact, we know that at the end of the millennium reign of Jesus Christ, Revelation chapter 20 tells us that those unbelievers, those in the, in, of the unrighteous dead are going to be resurrected at that time. They will stand before the great white throne judgment and they will be judged for their sins and then cast into outer darkness, that final resting place of the unbelievers. We will not be standing, you and I as believers, before the great white throne judgment. So now, a Christian on this side of the cross, that to be absent from the body, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, is to be present with the Lord. So immediately, the important thing for you to remember, when you take your last breath, you're immediately with the Lord. And so we see evidence of that over and over again in Scripture. Paul says um, between two straits, whether I'm going to die, which is better for me, to be with the Lord, or to stay here with you guys. We know that it was Stephen, that when he's being stoned in the book of Acts, chapter 7, that he saw heaven open up and there was Jesus standing. And he said that I commit my spirit uh, as Jesus would receive him. So for you and I as a Christian to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So are we clear on that? So here, Paul's just talking about that time when Jesus went down into Hades and said, hey, this is what you've been waiting for. He led captivity free, and so they would go up into heaven, that place of paradise. Now we go to be with the Lord, and we know that Jesus Christ is our victor. He gives gifts, gifts unto men, and we identify with Christ. In verse 11, he gave himself some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipment of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And we're going to pick it up here next time. But I want to end with this, and we're going to go to the communion table. But the Lord desires to use you and for you to be a part of the body of Christ. And he desires to use you to where you're not only edifying and comforting the body of Christ. God is glorified through all that but where you are going to be blessed as well. You remember the story of the feeding of the 5,000? That there was that little boy that brought Jesus the few fish and loaves that he would use to feed 5,000. And Jesus took those, that bread, those loaves and, and fish, and he would bless it, and they broke it, and he multiplied it, and it fed 5,000. And then there was 12 baskets full of leftovers that he told the disciples, go and, and fill up these baskets. And it's kind of interesting, 12 disciples, 12 baskets. They each got a basket full of blessing. And you may be here this morning, you're thinking, I don't have a whole lot to offer. I don't have a whole lot to give, Lord. I got a few fish and a few loaves. But as you give what you have to the Lord, and that is your heart, and say, Lord, here it is. That he's going to take it, and he's going to take your life, and he's going to bless it. He's going to bring some breaking. Because as A.W. Tozer said before, God uses a man or a woman greatly. He's going to break them deeply. There's a breaking process that happens because the Lord wants us to be dependent upon Him, not on ourselves, and to grow in our faith and trust in Him. So He's going to bless you. He'll breathe some breaking. But there's going to be multiplying to where you're going to be feeding others and blessing others, and helping others, and what God has for you. And you know what you're going to find? You're going to find in life, you're going to get a basket full of blessing back because it's such a joy to be used in the body of Christ. Listen, Christian, don't miss out. I think for a number of Christians... That is going to church and then going home. Going to church and going home. And listen, I'm not being critical. And I understand we're in different seasons of life. And I know that perhaps some of you are wondering, where do I fit into the body of Christ? And how it is that I plug in. But don't miss out on what God wants to do in your life and with your life. And it may be a season where you do have the gift of teaching, but you're teaching your children right now. It may be that you do have the gift of helps and God wants to give you the opportunity to be able to help others. The gift of giving, the gift of, of whatever is given to you, that you can be a part of the body of Christ, of exhortation to be a blessing to others. But the Lord wants to use you exceedingly, abundantly, as Paul prayed in the previous chapter, above all that we ask or think, to be a part of the body of Christ. And he gets the glory. We stay humble Because it is him that is gifting us and enabling us and working through us. And we have the joy. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for these few verses as we set the stage for what, Lord, you want to do in us, the gifts, the spiritual gifts that are given to us, how you desire for us to keep the unity in the body of Christ and how we need to keep the unity especially in the dark days in which we're living in, to be as one, to encourage each other, not to nitpick each other. And as Christians, to come together, because the world hates us and the world's getting darker, and the world needs to, to know that there's light and truth that we have to give to others, and that the church is something that we come that is different than the world. It's other-centered. It's Christ-centered. It's loving one another, being long-suffering and, and humble and patient with each other. It's being respectful and desiring for us to do well, all of us, in this thing called the church, in our walk with Christ. And Father, I do want to pray if there's anyone that's listening on live stream or Anyone who might perhaps listen to this message on the radio later or that are here today, I know the coffee shop is full. And those of us that are in this sanctuary, if you've never given your life to Jesus, you can have salvation, forgiveness of sin, right relationship with the Father and be a part of the body of Christ, but you've got to come in faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done for you and dying for your sins, admitting that you're a sinner, in need of the Savior of the world, Jesus, and believing that he rose from the grave. You see, Jesus came forth. The only one who ever lived who died for your sins, who rose from the grave. All others are still in the grave. Not Jesus. He's alive, and he loves you, and he's made provision for forgiveness because our sin separates us from God, and the wages of sin is death. And the only way to receive eternal life is to believe on his name, to come in faith. That means you repent and you surrender your heart to Jesus. Believe on his name. Cry out to him for salvation and forgiveness because he is your only hope and he loves you. To be born again by the spirit of God. And so if that means anything to anyone here today, You can pray right where you're sitting. That Jesus, I come to you, a sinner. And I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. Forgive me. I believe you died on the cross for me. And I believe that you're alive. You were put into a grave and you rose after three days. I thank you for what you have done for me, Jesus. Be my personal Lord and Savior, I ask. And sit upon the throne of my life and of my heart. I surrender my life to you and help me to live for you all the days of my life. And if you prayed that prayer, when the service is concluded, I want you to come up and pray with Pastor John. Tell me the decision you made or find me after the service. Tell me. We want to bless you and encourage you. But right now, as we come to the communion table, we come as we hold the elements, remembering the new covenant that we belong and are a part of, the covenant of love and grace, of Jesus allowing his body to be broken and his blood shed for forgiveness of sin. So as we enter into this time, may we just worship and be at all once again of your incredible grace and provision. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And as the ushers hand out the communion elements, I would ask that you would hang on to them and we'll partake of them together. to the Corinthian church, he writes that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, "Take eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me." Let's take the bread together. And In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, "This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me." Let's take the cup together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. To Father, we thank you for your incredible provision. And my prayer for everyone here is that we would be firmly seated with Christ in the heavenlies and then walk with Christ here in this life because of your incredible provision as we come to the communion table realizing the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, allowing his body to be broken, his blood shed because of your deep love for us. And, Lord, as we live in your love, may we just continue to live a life pleasing to you, desiring to be used of you because you want to use every single one of us. It's a dark world out there. It's getting darker. And, Lord, you desire to use us in a way that we can bring light and truth and good news. So, Father, I thank you for this time. May we go out of this place encouraged and blessed because we've been in the Word. And we've heard from you. Bless our week coming up. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you please stand? Now, I was thinking um, as we were just having communion and waiting on the Lord. On Friday, um, I was with my daughter out, and she's doing an internship in Eagle. And I was out there in Glenwood for a meeting. Um, and so I spent today Friday, and she, she took me fishing the Mount Massive Wilderness is a little lake up there. It's only about a mile high, but it's like this. And she's like a little mountain goat that just goes up the hill. Me, it's a little harder the older I get and stuff. But she was there saying, come on, Dad. Come on, Dad. You can make it. And I, and if I was by myself, I, I would have turned around and said, forget this. There's easier fish to catch. <laughs> but she's saying, come on, Dad. Come up. And so we went and, and went up, and it was steep, and it was hard. And, but when we got up there, yeah, the view was beautiful, and the fishing was fantastic. Guys, we need each other. And sometimes we just need encouragement to come on. The Lord desires to use you, and he wants to make your life really have purpose and meaning as you live for him. And we just need to edify and encourage and exhort one another in that, that God wants to. And sometimes it's hard and, and sometimes we slip and slide and, and all the other things that happen in life. And we got to allow our lives to be interrupted to where being flexible to where God wants to use us in the way that he's gifted us. But he desires to do so much. And when we get to where the Lord is done with us, it's a beautiful work. So don't miss out. Let him do what he desires to do in your life and with your life. So may the Lord bless you as you go your way, fill you with his love. We're going to close as Travis is going to close us. Lord willing, hopefully we'll see you on Wednesday night. So. And save you. Worthy of honor and glory. Worthy of all our praise. For you overcame. And Jesus, you're awesome in power forever. Awesome in grace your name you overcame Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great Sunday. See you soon.